This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanesi Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Florian Ederer, who is an associate professor in economics at the Yale School of Management, an affiliated faculty member of the Yale Department of Economics, and a research staff member of the Cowles Foundation. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Killer Acquisitions, which is co-authored with Colin Cunningham and Songma and forthcoming at the Journal of Political Economy. Hello, Florian. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jody. Thanks for having me. So, F Florian, can you start by telling us what is a killer acquisition? Obviously, the most important question of the entire paper. Um, so we came up with this term of a killer acquisition uh, as an acquisition where a dominant incumbent buys a potential entrant who does not yet have an established product or just has a project under development, acquires this project and terminates development of this project, i.e. kills it so that the project never comes to fruition and that the product never comes onto the market and that the product can never be purchased by consumers. So this project is in some sense some type of innovation as well, correct? There is an, a, an important innovating element uh, that is part of this acquisition. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's a situation where it's a new project, it's a new product that would potentially improve over the existing product of the incumbent or just provide new variety that would potentially steal away some of the profits or some of the market share from the product of the incumbent. So this will also be slightly different from, say, a big incumbent buying a smaller competitor and then closing down a plant. Yeah, I think that's that's different. That's because that's a situation where you have existing uh, products already. Uh, sometimes I think the you know since we coined that that term killer acquisition, it has a little bit taken on a life of its own. Uh, so. Uh, I don't think the, the term gets used quite so specifically the way we initially intended it. Um, uh, some people have complained to me that now anything that's an anti-competitive acquisition is called a killer acquisition. So ones that where the product doesn't even get terminated or where it is an existing product that just gets removed from a market. Strictly speaking, those are not killer acquisitions in the sense that we intended, but it is now being used a bit more widely. And I'm okay with that. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, there's the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Goethe's poem that sort of summons ghosts and then he can't control the ghosts anymore. It's a little bit like that with killer acquisitions where we came up with the word and we can no longer really control how the word is being used. So what you're proposing in this paper, in some sense, is also an explanation as to why acquisitions exist. Can you tell us what are the main ones or, or what is the main... Uh, rationale that has been proposed as to why uh, firms acquire other other firms? It, that's a great question. Uh, and it is indeed true that acquisitions happen for a multitude of reasons, not just the anti-competitive ones that we focus on in this paper. There are reasons to acquire other companies for synergistic reasons. Um, it's complementary to an existing product. Uh, you can use the new project and distribute it over all the existing distribution channels that you already have as an incumbent. There are 
maybe greater scale that you can deploy uh, the new project at. There may be even greater expertise that existing incumbents have to develop projects. So they could be even better at this. And so that these are totally also reasons um, which would lead to acquisitions. Um, so we're not saying that all of these acquisitions that we're going to talk about uh, on the empirical side are killer acquisitions. But I think it's a situation where it's initially a bit counterintuitive that any company would buy something just to shut it down. So as you say, all these explanations have been around for a very long time. Your explanation is novel uh, in, in the sense that nobody has proposed it and, and especially measured it empirically. The, the actual empirical focus of the paper is on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, can you tell us how this phenomenon of killer acquisitions will actually look like in this industry? Yeah, the uh, empirical context that we focus on in the paper is indeed uh, pharmaceutical drug development. The way that it looks is um, relatively simple to explain. In fact, one of the motivating examples that we have in the paper uh, is uh, a litigated case between the FTC and uh, Questcore Malincrot, where um, Questcore had an existing drug for ACTH treatment, it's called ACTHA, um, but there was a new drug in development called Synacthan, which essentially is a synthetic version of ACTHA to treat rare infantile spasms. Um, but uh, what happened was that uh, Questcore and Malincrot, they bought the, uh, the rights to Synacthan, so this potential synthetic version of the existing drug, bought it, but decided never to develop it. Uh, at the same time, they also raised the price of the existing drug to almost astronomical amounts of $30,000. And of course, that didn't sit terribly well with consumers who could see that in other countries, uh, synthetic versions of the same drug were being offered, but they weren't being offered in the US because it hadn't been put through, um, a farm for, through uh, approval. And so then the FTC caught wind of this and uh, won essentially a lawsuit. Uh, they settled out of court and uh, put a $100 million fine onto this acquisition because it essentially was an acquisition just to extinguish a nascent competitive threat. So it's the situation is one of where you essentially get terminated because you have a potentially new competing drug. So once you explain to me this rationale, I, I find it very intuitive. Um, also in this type of uh, anecdote or example that, that you proposed, um, it seems very likely that that was indeed a killer acquisition. But what you want to do in the paper goes a little bit further than that. You want to show empirically that this is a quantitatively important phenomenon. So what are the main challenges that one will face uh, to show this? I think that that's a you know, great observation. It's always fun to tell anecdotes because, uh, you know, they resonate very well uh, with audiences. But of course, what we do as scientists or as economic scientists is, of course, providing large scale empirical evidence. And that's much, much harder than just telling a funny little anecdote like I just did uh, in our response to your first question. 
what is what we are trying to do essentially is just we use pharmaceutical drug development not because we think it's the industry where killer acquisitions are necessarily most widely occurring in fact i can tell you a little bit later maybe about this we initially thought about a completely different industry where we wanted to do the empirical analysis but we couldn't do it but the reason why we focused on pharmaceutical drug development is because the data are so great in the setting precisely for the reason because it has to go through all this drug approval and it has to be uh, transmitted to the uh, fda so a regulatory authority where that gathers up all this data and so the way what we that we do uh, use this is for every single drug project that's under development we have both the therapeutical treatment group as well as the mechanism of action the first one so the therapeutical treatment group is essentially what type of disease do you treat and the mechanism of action is how do you treat this disease with the drug? And the combination of those two then yields very, very, very tight and precise market definitions. So we can really say, oh, this is a situation where there is an incumbent buying a project that directly overlaps with an existing drug of the acquirer. Okay. And so without this sort of designation, it would be very, very hard to do this. So we have both this market designation as well as the whole history of development stages and development decisions that in other industries we wouldn't be able to observe. So if I understand well, the main challenge is then, or, or the first main challenge is then a measurement challenge, which is that you need to be able to measure empirically that the acquiring firm and the acquired product are competing with each other. And Absolutely. this is something that, that in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, is very well defined because that combination of treatment and mechanism of action will give you what drugs compete with each other. Uh, exactly. And the second is that you are, you have to be able to measure the actual killing. Uh, and obviously, even in your paper, there is no variable that is called killing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you interpret lack of development uh, in, in the way that you, you will tell us later as, you know, evidence that 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 of, of lack of bringing that project forward to the market. Yeah, that, so that's, a when great, I was... that, that's a great point. So if I may interrupt you there, it's, you know, it, even given all this data that we are using already, you exactly pinpointed one of the main challenges is we, no company ever... Oh, in very few cases, do companies ever report, oh, we completely terminated this product. Um, it, it is sometimes actually observed. So we have one uh, specification where we do observe terminations, but we also have evidence that there's significant underreporting of terminations. So we have to somewhat infer that a drug development decision is terminated. So this brings me to like... Uh, uh a thought that I had when I was reading the paper, uh, which is that this is this is a very unusual paper. I mean, it is a type of paper that is becoming uh, more and more unusual in economics. Um, so most empirical papers in, in economics focus on untangling causal relations between variables. Uh, but this is not the objective here. You want to show instead that this phenomenon of killer acquisitions 
exists. But you cannot go around asking the executives of the acquiring companies um, what the objective of the acquisition was because typically they will deny that the objective was to kill the innovation. So instead, what you do is show a variety of empirical patterns that will be very difficult to explain if these killer acquisitions did not exist. And, and this implies that this uh, paper, in, in, in that sense at least, belongs to a, a slightly heterodox tradition uh, of papers called forensic economics papers. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, people have mentioned this before. These are papers that use a variety of techniques, often um, indirect tests, uh, to shed light on some behavior that the economic agents undertaking that behavior would like to remain hidden. Uh, this is what, what, what you are essentially doing here, like a, uh, opening the bonnet of, of the car and showing us what there is underneath in, in a slightly indirect matter, manner, but that, that, uh, after all the tests that you run is, is a, is quite compelling. Yeah, I like that characterization a lot. It's not, it's definitely the first time I've heard this term. Um, I've heard of the term forensic economics before. I, I hadn't heard it applied, uh, to our paper, but that's exactly, I think, the right characterization of what we do is we don't, we don't have, you know, a super clean causal test where we're randomly allocating projects to different companies or we are randomly allowing them to purchase certain competitors or not, or we don't get, uh, truthful revelation from the executives telling us that they bought a company in order to um, commit an antitrust violation. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a paper that has a story that's sort of theoretically guided uh, from the theoretical analysis that we do, and then spends a great deal of the paper just trying to rule out a bunch of other explanations uh, with a variety of other data sources. So, so as you say, the, the theory model, um, is, is very important here. Uh, it said that you have a theoretical framework to capture what this idea of clear innovations should mean in practice. Okay. So the, I'm a big fan of combining theoretical and empirical work. Uh, it's sometimes challenging because you need the right set of co-authors that understand both theory and empirics, but in this particular context, I think it works particularly well because the initial basic intuition of killer acquisitions is very, very simple. And I don't think you really need a model for this, but for some of the additional predictions that we generate out of the theory and then look for in the empirical analysis, um, you really do need a theoretical model. At least I needed one because I didn't think of those things uh, before I had solved the model. So one of these is that, uh, competition, existing competition, as well as future competition has an important impact of how likely it is that these killer acquisitions occur. Uh, when there is a lot of existing competition, then essentially when I buy a product or a project to be developed, then I am not only cannibalizing myself, my existing product, but I'm also cannibalizing all of these other existing products. And so I'm actually not all that much in disincentivized from doing development. So killer acquisitions are less likely when there is already a lot of existing competition. They're more likely when 
the main impact of development is cannibalization or destruction of existing profits of the acquirer. And the same intuition also applies for uh, the, the arrival of future uh, competition or the early arrival of future competition as in the case of maybe a p expiring patent. Um, so I think, yes, the, the theory is important here in terms of, of guiding us. Um, there's, there's the second part of the theory, which I think is important, which is that uh, it gives us a good sense of what the restrictions are, sort of how general is this finding. So if I go back and I think here it was super helpful to have great referees also, um, who suggested, well, can you show this to us a bit more generally? Does it matter uh, that there are synergies or not? So, for example, kill acquisitions become less likely when there are big synergies or when the incumbent has uh, large development advantages. Is it the case that um, lots of competition in the takeover market, in the purchase market, so if there are multiple bidders, does that mean that killer acquisitions go away? And the answer is no, but it's in somewhat surprising ways because it leads to a situation where you get bidding with externalities. Um, so that's all stuff that I didn't know until I solved the model. Uh, and probably without referees, I have, wouldn't even have thought of it. And I think the paper is much better because of that. This is, this is true, but I, I want to go back to the initial empirical prediction of the concept of killer acquisitions that, that you went slightly quickly through. If I understand it well, under your theory or under this concept or in your model, innovations are acquired and they shut down because they will potentially compete with incumbent's uh, product. So this implies that innovations that overlap with the incumbent's product may be acquired and then killed, while non-overlapping innovations may be acquired for other reasons but typically will not be subject to killer acquisitions. Correct. So this is important because this creates a contrast with alternative theories uh, that you were referring to earlier. So it, in these alternative theories, such as, for instance, exploiting synergies, one would expect that incumbents acquire overlapping innovations because having a related product gives them better development capabilities. So this would imply that under the synergies theory, overlapping innovations are developed with a higher likelihood, but under the killer acquisitions uh, theory, overlapping uh, innovations are developed less often with a lower likelihood. So this is, this is the main uh, identifying factor. And then, of course, as you say, there is the additional layer than if the incumbent decide to protect its own profits, the higher these profits are, the higher the incentive to engage in this behavior of killer acquisitions. Uh, and these profits will be higher when there is lower product market competition. And uh, I think that you didn't mention that the, the patents, the patents are going to last for longer. Exactly. That yeah, that, that's, a, a, that's exactly the, the characterization I would employ. Um, of course, you know, in the paper, that very short and basic intuition is sprawled out over 60 pages. And I'd say, you know, your podcast is a much better way of getting that intuition than just reading our paper. But I, I did notice as I was reading the theory that the theory is robust to the existence of other forces, such as, well, what if we put synergies on top or we 
what if we put uh, that different incumbents are competing for the acquisition and, and so on. So these are elements that make the theory more robust, but they are not necessarily the, the foundation, the, the, the initial stone uh, absolutely. Of, of the yeah. concept. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really the sort of the just additional robustness checks to make sure that this, this isn't just some quirk uh, that works in a theoretical model and just happens to work in the data in one particular industry. It is, I think the, the part of the theory also is there to explain to the reader that this isn't just some particular quirk of the pharmaceutical industry, but that any situation where you worry about cannibalization or where incumbents worry about cannibalization and can prevent this type of cannibalization through acquisitions, um, that's going to be then yield, be yielding um, incentives to engage in killer acquisitions. And that might be true in some industries and it might not be true in other industries. What is the data that you use uh, from the pharmaceutical industry uh, to, to study this empirically? Yeah, so we have a, a whole set of data sources, um, all of which are publicly available from a data vendor. Um, the main source is uh, a, a data set that's called Pharma Projects, um, which is available for purchase for uh, any anyone. It gets available at reduced rates from for researchers. For those people who are interested in working in this space also, um, we've provided a very, very uh, thorough data replication process, which is available uh, on, on the JPE website. Um, and that data source essentially just captures all the development decisions of all the drugs that are under development. Okay, it tells you uh, where, what the drug does, what diseases it treats, what molecule is attached to it, um, uh, that what where the trials have been run, what phase it currently is, um, where it eventually was approved, and so on. So it's a very, very, very rich data set, um, which of course makes our job much, much easier. Because um, if you think of some other industries, this type of, of uh, information on non not yet existing products is basically impossible to obtain. Uh, but it also suggests that uh, because this product is commercially available, uh, you it is not surprising that pharmaceutical companies pay attention exactly to the pipeline of their competitors or potential competitors. So what makes our job easy potentially also makes killer acquisitions more likely because it, it makes it easier to find out who is actually potentially threatening uh, your uh, existing profits. So we have that main data source from Pharma Projects. We combine that with a bunch of other uh, data sources, including information on acquisitions. And that comes from uh, several um, standard acquisition databases. We combine this with um, patent data where we can identify who or which inventor is on the patent for a particular drug project. Um, we combine this with uh, so-called molecular similarity measures to find out how similar are certain types of drugs. Uh, we combine this with information about uh, antitrust reporting threshold. So it's really a, 
concerted data effort where, you know, I will have to particularly credit my, my two co-authors, Song Ma and Colleen Cunningham, who, uh, although, you know, of course I helped in all of this, they really did a fabulous job of pulling together all of these data sources to do exactly this type of forensic economics that you mentioned that tries to rule out a bunch of different things. Okay. But without really having a clean cut RCT type setup, uh, that gives you uh, the story that yes, killer acquisitions do exist. So uh, as you said, in critical, of course, to the data set is that you can measure what firm acquires what other firm. But the big advantage of the data set is that you can measure very precisely what products are competing with each other. Uh, you already mentioned this before, but can you, can you remind us? What are the variables that capture that there are two pharmaceutical drugs that are competing or potentially competing uh, if if one of them is developed in the future uh, with each other? Yeah, so this is, uh, as you said, the, probably the most important aspect of the data or the one that helps us probably the most. Uh, for those people who are not super familiar with what happens usually in an industrial organization, which this paper is also related to, is that the number one exercise is trying to find the right market definition. So do products overlap? What is the substitution pattern? And, you know, the standard thing you would do is you uh, see the substitution patterns from existing products. But unfortunately, in our setting, that's impossible because many of these products never even come to the market. So we have to do something different. And that's where it really helps to have directly designated market definitions given to us just from the pharma projects data. Um, specifically, what we do is we have two ways of de defining a market. Number one is the therapeutic class. So this could be, and here's where I pretend to be a health economist, okay, which I'm not, of course. Uh, this could be something like hypertension or the drugs that treated this is anti-hypertensives. Anti the second ingredient is the so-called mechanism of action, which is how can we treat hypertension in, in this particular case? And you could be treating hypertension in many different ways. There could be calcium channel blockers. There could be vasodilators. There could be diuretics. These do treat hypertension, but they treat them in different ways. Okay? And then we essentially say, okay, the precise and most, the tightest market definition I can think of is these are two products or one existing product and a potential product, a project in development that are in the same therapeutic class and are using the same mechanism of action. Okay? And if they're not exactly in the same, they could be still in the same therapeutic class, i.e. in hypertension, but it could be one is a vasodilator and the other one is a diuretic, then under the tightest uh, definition for overlap, we'll be saying that they're not overlapping because they could potentially be complements. They need not be substitutes. So you say that a big advantage of focusing on the pharmaceutical industry here is that we can observe that those that two uh, drugs are substitutes, even when one of them is not an actual product, and that industrial organization uh, economies typically they can they can study only products that are already in the market. But I, I will I will argue that another um, secondary advantage is that in this setting, belonging to the same market or not can be approximated by a discrete variable. 
in the same in a, in a way that in other industries it wouldn't be as easy. Because in other industries you could think the elasticity institution is not zero, it's not infinite, it's somewhere in between, and and then there may be a lot of measurement error in how we capture this idea. But here, if two drugs have the same therapeutic market, the same mechanism of action, essentially you can use them almost indistinctively, you would argue. Whereas if they are not, 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 not entirely, I'd say, you know, there still is, there are still branded competitors. So they're not generic competitors. It's true that if they were generic competitors, then they would essentially be indistinguishable. I'd say that they are substitutes, but they're not perfect substitutes in that setting. Yeah. Then let me put it another way. If they don't have the same intended thera therapeutic market, for sure, they are not substitutes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That will definitely, that, yeah. at least on the negative side. Yes, uh, yeah, there is an advantage yeah, there. Yeah. So, so a big part of uh, the paper is about measuring what what killing means or what not developing means. Can you can you tell us again what what does developing and innovation mean in this specific context of the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. So, the, um, as I mentioned before, the the issue that we face is that in many cases we don't observe terminations because they are not reported or uh, even intentionally underreported. So what we instead resort, resort to is uh, just lack of development. So what the Pharma Project's uh, database gives us is uh, several different milestones. So did you go from one phase to another? Did you... Um, come up with a new approval? Did you uh, test something and the trial went okay? So all of these things are reported directly in the database and that's what we use as a milestone event or a positive development event. The uh, absence of such positive development events, i.e. the complete phasing out of these development events, for us is indicative that the project project development has essentially ceased. We have one uh, specification, of course, also that literally looks at termination. So sometimes terminations are reported. Um, and so we can rerun the same type of idea that we have for lack of development, where we show that development is less likely when the acquired, uh, the acquired entity overlaps with an existing drug of the, of the acquirer, we can rerun that same thing now with terminations. We can show that terminations are indeed more likely when the acquisition occurs by an acquirer that has an overlapping drug uh, already on the market. So, so just to emphasize, this is this finding that you just mentioned is the first, the baseline finding uh, of the paper, okay, which is that uh, overlapping acquired drugs are developed at lower rates than non-overlapping acquired drugs. This will be the baseline finding. And then uh, on top of this, you have additional findings that are also consistent with the things that you told us about the theory. Exactly. So for this baseline finding, one way to think about it is as a difference in the differences model. Uh, mm -hmm where overlapping acquisitions are the treated group or the treated acquisitions. Then there is the event which is being acquired 
uh, and then the lower likelihood of development. Mm -hmm. So typically in standard defensive models, you have to look at the pre-trends uh, for the treated group or, or the differential trends mm -hmm. for the treated and control group. What do you find there? Yeah, so we have we have those pre-trends there, and of course, you know, one has to be careful in saying that you know, uh, uh, the pre-trend, an absence of a pre-trend is still not indicative that you truly are identifying a causal effect here. Um, so we we find that you know, there's essentially nothing on on the pre-trends; they seem to be essentially unaffected by this, and it's really the lack of development only occurs after the acquisition, and only occurs after an acquisition in case of an overlapping uh, drug project. Um, and I think, you know, the, this, this overlap part is really the, the key thing in all of this here. Um, we have some findings that show actually that there might be even a negative effect of acquisitions per se. So we find negative effects on development for uh, acquired projects, even when they're non-overlapping. But I think, uh, but we think that that is mostly due to the extremely precise market definitions that we use. So, for example, as I said earlier, you know, we use the therapeutic class and the mechanism of action. Um, you could also have a less tight market definition that where you said, okay, let's assume that two drugs or one drug, existing drug and a project are overlapping if they are already in the same therapeutic class. Once we do that, uh, then the negative pure acquisition effect goes away. So the, in that case, non-overlapping acquisitions don't seem to have um, more negative a negative effect on development. Uh, it's, but it's still the case that the um, uh, overlapping uh, acquisitions, as defined by by just being in a therapeutic class, that still uh, has now. Uh, a, a, um, a negative effect on development rates. So, so this is the testing of the first prediction. Um, as we mentioned, there is a, a second important prediction uh, there, uh, which is that the, the incentives for killer acquisitions uh, are stronger when the incumbent has out of existing profits at risk, either because, because it is operating in a very uncompetitive market or because he has a lot of years left uh, in the patent uh, of his current product. Um, what do you find there? So uh, the, we do something really simple. In fact, you know, most of the empirics in our paper, very simple, conditional on assembling all of uh, the data. Um, and the main finding that we have is we essentially redo our initial baseline specification, but now we just split the sample into those markets or those projects where the incumbent is facing little competition versus more competition. What I mean by little competition is essentially we're just counting the number of existing products that or competitors that, that exist already in the market. We take the median there and then split them into a low competition and a high competition group. Um, in the low competition group, it's either the incumbent faces no competition or one competitor. And if they're facing two or more competitors, then they're put into the high competition group. And then we find that this negative effect on development 
rates for overlapping acquisitions only is present in the low competition part of the sample. So where we do this because we do a median split, essentially it's an equal split between the two and you only find the effect in the lower part. You can also run this with an interaction, it essentially gives you the same, uh, same result that there's only really a significant effect or the negative effect on um, development rates is really only present for the low competition part and not for the uh, high competition part. Um, similarly, since you mentioned the patterns, okay, um, we can do this for uh, different lengths of the uh, remaining pattern. The idea there is just that if I know that there's generic competition coming in for my existing drug in a couple of years or in five years or less, then there's, there's not that much point in doing a killer acquisition because I, all of my profits will be cannibalized by, uh, new competitors, new generic competitors anyway. So I'm actually more likely than to still develop because I want to have another drug that has lots of patent life left. Um, and so we find again that the effect of these killer acquisitions, this negative development rate is really only there when the patent length is uh, five years or the remaining patent length is five years or more. And there is also one last prediction that we haven't mentioned, or rather is a prediction that is an ingredient of the model, uh, which is that uh, acquiring incumbents should typically acquire target firms that have overlapping drugs. Uh, if they are motivated, obviously, by by the, the acquisitions, uh, rationale that you are um, th that you are examining in this paper so how, how you test how do you test that prediction yeah so this is a this is a great part um, to discuss because it's it's of course a prediction that's not unique to our model uh, or unique to our story you know the uniqueness of our story is one that you do acquisitions and then you don't develop the projects afterwards it's not super unique to uh, have a prediction that says you acquire stuff that is similar to the stuff that you already have. Because, you know, for all of, uh, us teaching competitive strategy or working in management, we know about all of these, uh, theories that say, well, you should be acquiring stuff that is complementary to what you already have. And of course, stuff that is overlapping with you, you might have greater expertise at developing this type of stuff. So the fact that we, then document that it is indeed much, much more likely, about four to five times more likely that you would acquire a project that overlaps with an existing project of yours, then you would be acquiring an, a non-overlapping project is, of course, consistent with our theory because you want to acquire overlapping stuff here to, to kill it, but it's not unique in the sense that... Uh, you want to acquire it and you might then still want to develop it. So it's really the combination of those two that's uh, indicative of a theory that you want to acquire stuff that overlaps with you. But then once it is acquired, it has lower development rates. The, a synergy story or a complementarity story would actually predict something different. It would predict that you acquire stuff that overlaps with you and then it should have higher development rates then the stuff that gets acquired in non-overlapping way or that doesn't even get acquired because then for those, the synergies are not present. And so the, the really the combination of the fact that we have lower development rates as well as acquisitions of 
or higher likelihood of acquisitions of overlapping projects that's uh, is that tells sort of the consistent story uh, for uh, the killer acquisitions rationale. So as you say, the, the higher likelihood of acquisition may not be the main differentiating empirical finding, but it's at least reassuring. <laughs> is, Imagine yeah. that you were to find the opposite. Right? Yeah, that would then, be bad news then, for us. Yeah, that would be bad news. Okay, yeah. for for the. Yeah. So I was I was referring earlier to this paper belonging to the forensic economics uh, tradition, and you have one additional finding in particular uh, that there uh, that indicates that there is some type of strategic intent on the part of acquiring firms. Um, that is the, the firms that have as as an objective uh, to kill the innovation. Uh, can you tell us what is the inf- this finding and how you interpret it? Yeah, so this is, uh, I think, where I really have to give credit to other researchers on this topic. So I, I met, as you said uh, at the beginning of the podcast, I met Yale SOM, so I'm surrounded by a fabulous industrial organization economist. I myself, like you, Jordi, I'm an organization economics and innovation scholar. So before I came here to LSM, I wasn't super familiar with uh, all the intricacies of industrial organization and antitrust. But if you're around Fiona Scott Morton or Judy Chevalier, who are my colleagues, then often you will hear about uh, antitrust rules such as these uh, Hartscott-Rudino notification thresholds. So for those of you who are not familiar with this, this is a situation where if I buy you, Jordi, as a company, I don't have to tell the antitrust authorities about it. But if I buy you for more than $200 million or, you know, an amount that actually changes every single year, depending on exactly what the GDP deflator is, um, I have to file a so-called pre-merger notification to uh, the DFTC or the, or the DOJ. And so that the reason for this is like peop- the antitrust authorities, of course, want to look at acquisition and to see whether there, there is anti-competitive conduct here, whether it has negative effects on consumers. Now, if I want to do a killer acquisition, uh, ideally, I'd like to do that outside of the view and outside of the scrutiny of uh, the antitrust authorities. And uh, so what I would do is I would try to do that acquisition just below this HSR, this hartscott rodino notification threshold. Okay? Indeed, there's beautiful research by um, Tom Bowman at Chicago Booth who shows that this type of stealth acquisition or stealth consolidation where you acquire stuff just below the acquisition threshold is a serious concern. And so we take his insights and apply this to our paper and check, is it the case that these killer acquisitions predominantly occur just below the notification thresholds? And there's two things that we do. The first thing is we look at what are the development rates of projects that get acquired just below these notification thresholds. And there we find that the development rates of projects that get acquired just below the notification thresholds are much, much lower than the ones that get acquired just above the notification thresholds. Okay. Now, of course, how much you pay for a project or for a company is endogenous. Okay. So, it's, 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 it's not, of course, a, you know, an RDD to just check what happens above and below the threshold because you can game, uh, in some sense, whether you want to acquire below or above the threshold. And so we look at 
do these overlapping acquisitions. So the ones that uh, we say are particularly at risk of a kill acquisitions, do they occur predominantly below the threshold? Okay. And so if you look, if you plot the uh, histogram of distributions uh, of the, the, the histogram of these acquisitions, you'll find that for non-overlapping acquisitions, there's essentially nothing exciting or suspicious going on around this HSR notification threshold. But if you plotted it for the overlapping acquisitions, okay, the ones that are potentially at risk of being kill acquisitions, you see a huge spike just below the notification threshold. Okay? And so that tells us that it's likely some strategic intent here when you do these kill acquisitions that you'd ideally like to do them outside of the view, outside the scrutiny of antitrust authorities. So the idea here is that um, the executives of the acquiring companies did not think after the acquisition, oh, wait a second, this product is competing with our own product. But it was before the acquisition that they were aware of this fact. Yeah. And, and that, that was a determining factor motivating the acquisition. I agree. Um, that That is certainly the interpretation we want to give. Now, of course, it's always hard to ascribe intentions exactly to what people do, but certainly our our data analysis uh, or, or empirical evidence is consistent with exactly this very intentional story of doing acquisitions uh, uh, in a premeditated way uh, in order to avoid antitrust scrutiny. Is this paper like the end of this story for you or there is other work that you would like to do or you would like other people to do in this area? Uh, I think there's already really exciting work underway on, on this type of research. Um, I will advertise again uh, the work on stealth consolidation that uh, Tom Woolman is doing at Chicago Booth. He's, he's really taken the mantle on of trying to figure out what we can do about antitrust reporting thresholds and how um, we can design the stuff better in order to encourage more competition. The obvious thing to do and the one that I get asked about all the time is when I presented this paper was, uh, yes, you tell us something about pharmaceuticals, but what we really care about is big tech. We would care about the acquisitions that Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple are doing. Can you tell us something about whether those are killer acquisitions as well? And in fact, you know, in order to bring this now full circle, that's the original idea that we had. Um, I remember very well in sitting in Song Ma's office, that was my co-author, and telling him that a student in my MBA class had mentioned that there are many anti-competitive acquisitions, including acquisitions of potential competitors. And I told him, look, I think I can do a model of this. Maybe we can do some empirics on this. And we tried searching around for data on this and it's very 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 tricky and we just could not get it to work and we we're always basically ready to abandon the project completely and that's when colleen cunningham came along um because song ma knew her from grad school at duke and she had this insight oh really the market you need to look at or the industry we need to look at is pharmaceuticals and she of course brought all of this expertise on pharmaceutical from some of previous papers that she had done. She had also had a lot of background in biopharmaceutical research. And so it was really then that stuff clicked. But yes, people should write a paper on tech. And um, I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying that 
Uh, I have some co-authors uh, of mine that are working on this right now. So, Florian, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank, thank you for having me, Jordi. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Florian Ederer. And uh, check this feed uh, for other podcasts uh, of The Visible Hand. <laughs>